Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts today, Ben Sternke. I'm here with my friend and partner in a lot of life. Not my life partner, but (laughs) my ministry partner, podcast partner, uh, friend, Matt Tebby. Yes. Nice to to be together uh, on this fine day. Uh, in in March, although this episode is going to be releasing in East in uh, Easter tide, April sixth. I need, some, I need yeah. some Easter up in this, up in Whew. this uh, what? Yeah, uh, in this pandemic. Up in this pandemic, we need some Easter. Up in this racism, uh, we need some Easter. <laughs> up in this, everything that's happening, we need <sighs> resurrection. Yeah. Oh, we need resurrection. Man, we, oh, we really do. I was just uh, I sent um, a couple Fridays ago sent. Uh, to our, if you're interested in getting our curated links, by the way, oh. sign up for our for, sign up for our newsletter, gravityleadership.com/slash/join. Yes. Um, it's uh, it. I write I write an email to our community uh, with links. I write it every Thursday, and it goes out Friday mornings. Um, and I just said in uh, a couple emails ago, just said how uh, exhausted I feel, hmm. just spent. Yeah, I've talked to I've talked to so many people. Yeah. In the last week or so, and that's yeah. been their check-in. Yeah, burned out is the word I hear. A burned lot. out. Yeah, this feels like. Bur- I mean, you know, I don't want people to get overly concerned. I think I think I'm going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. But it is. It's been hard. It's been a hard year, and I don't know what it is about this this point in the pandemic. But it just feels like all right. I think I think I'm empty. <laughs> I yeah, I think that's all I got. Well, and that's one so of anyway. the reasons why we wanted to. Um, take a moment to introduce the fact that we have a new sponsor uh, yeah. that actually deals with some of what we're talking about. I think mm-hmm. probably yeah. more so than at any time um, in my life, there is a collective uh, awareness for a, for the need for care. Like we just, yeah. we, we're beyond what we can handle as autonomous individuals or even mm. as, you know, these discrete little family units. It's really right. hard. Netflix can't fix this. No, you know? no, we've we've tried, <laughs> we've tried. <laughs> Although I just started watching Narcos, and that's pretty good, but it's still yeah, not yeah. help. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not helping the malaise. Um, so anyway, we have a new sponsor f- at the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Um, it's a it's an organization called Raspero, mm-hmm. and they do uh, counseling and training to to become lay counselors. Yeah. Um, and a lot of their training is free, 
and they are their their uh, mission and vision is aligned closely with gravity. So we're yeah. happy to connect yeah. you with them. Yeah. And so listen for, there'll be a lot more information uh, coming later in the episode about Respero and what they do and how you can get connected with them. But, um, but yeah, they, they contacted us and this, this is the first time we've actually done something like this up until this point, we've sort of just sponsored our own podcast. We've been our own sponsor. Um, yeah, we've been doing pretty good though. <laughs> oh yeah. We've been very doing faithful. Fine. We're very faithful. We, we sponsor ourselves really, really well. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this, this felt, they reached out to us. Um, they'd heard about us and they, this felt like a good fit. You know, it isn't just sort of uh, random money, but it feels like a, a partnership uh, with an yeah. organization that we can definitely get behind and feel good about uh, directing you towards. So yeah. look for more information um, coming later in the episode about Respero. Mm-hmm. Like, like be listening for it. Be listening for the ad. It's coming. Um, it's coming. Yeah. Anyway. But, but and before the ad, we're going to get yeah. to Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making yeah. of Biblical Womanhood. Oh, yeah. And she just crushes it. She, she she's does. a medieval it, historian, and yeah. she succeeds in writing a book about uh-huh. medieval history that is compelling and exciting. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, n- numerous times, I was like, "Holy cow! I had no idea." Yes. Um, yes. And but basically, like one of we get into this. One of her basic claims is that this idea of biblical womanhood that gets thrown around. Um, right. And if you haven't heard that phrase, God bless you. Uh, just turn off this podcast. Now. Don't <laughs> yeah, you don't, need, you don't need. But, but, you don't need this book. It's fine. But for the rest of us, um, <laughs> yeah. that, that phrase gets thrown around, and it and the people yeah. who use that phrase uh, claim the high ground of church tradition. And what Beth Allison Barr does is she shows that the making of biblical womanhood is novel, mm-hmm. and it emerges from a culture that is not what one would suspect. You. You almost need to put scare quotes around biblical, basically, is what you're saying, right? And, it's like and womanhood, <laughs> scare quote the whole thing around the whole title, <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, scare quote, and it's it is interesting, I think, because it's it's a brilliant rhetorical move mm-hmm. in that you can claim you can claim the biblical high ground, mm-hmm. uh, but in fact, that so like and there's a lot of books that are uh, beginning to show this, but so much of what we, if you grew up in the evangelical world. Um, so much of what, he, what we assumed was biblical womanhood or biblical manhood was in fact uh, cultural. It just came from culture and we found some Bible verses that seemed to fit uh, what we wanted to say and we called it biblical. You know, and I don't, I don't want to say that people are being intentionally nefarious. I, mm. I think people have the best of intentions, but um, that's why books like Beth's are really, really helpful to kind of show, hey, yeah. here's the mistakes the biblical and theological mistakes we've made in setting this up as the only uh, way that women can be women mm. um, and men can be men. So uh, this was a great interview. It was a lot of fun. We laughed. Here's another teaser for later in the interview. We laughed a lot right at the end. Do you remember this? I don't, but I'm, I, I like to laugh w- a lot. So. Yes, we laughed a lot right at the end because we, we listed the 10 reasons why men should not be ordained. Um, Remember that? Oh anyway. yes, I you read them. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I read them. Yeah, it's from incredible. an old uh, post from Eugene Cho. Oh, incredible! But, uh, they, they were really, really funny. So anyway, yeah, uh, look for that and look for more information about Respero. Uh, let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's right. do it. Beth Allison Barr, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yes, we are talking with you today about your new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Mm. Um, But first, let me give like a brief intro, like who you are, and I'm just going to give like the bare bones of your bio, and then you can tell us the fun, exciting stuff. Sure, that sounds Um, great. (laughs) <laughs> you are an associate professor of history and associate dean of graduate school at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and your specialties are medieval history, mm-hmm. women's history, and church history, uh, which actually comes out in this book in a really uh, skillful way, I thought. Thank you. But uh, anything else we need to know about you, Beth, before we jump in? Well, um, I have been a pastor's wife 
all the time that I've been in academia. I got married 10 days before I started grad school at Chapel Hill. And so my husband and I have been, he started seminary at Southeastern Baptist the same time I started a women's history program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So we have been in this thing together, uh, you know, with the, the evolution, you know, the time that we started grad school was in 1997. And so that was really when the biblical womanhood was heating up. Um, and so it's, so he was at Southeastern and I was in this women's history program at Chapel Hill. And it's this, I mean, this has been my life, how these yes. two fields, how these two areas um, don't fit together and the reality behind it. Um, and we stayed in complementarian churches until 2016 when essentially we were thrown out. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yes. We want to hear more of that story. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think, uh, just to talk about the structure of the book that I th- uh, was really helpful for me, um, is that you tell basically three stories. Mm-hmm. You tell your, you're in your husband's story. You tell the story of sort of the modern evangelical church. Mm-hmm. And then you tell the story of like mid, the medieval church and medieval Roman and Reformation women. Yep. And you, you weave all three together in a really, um, profoundly helpful way. Thank you. Uh, When you hear medieval history, some people like, uh, they fall asleep before you even finish uh, the word history. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) But how did, I just wonder, how did that, how did you strike upon that way of structuring and ordering your narrative? I'm a teacher. Um, I've been teaching women's history at Baylor since 2008. And I've been teaching it to students who come from heavily complementarian evangelical backgrounds. And so this is the way I teach my classes. Um, I structured the book when I, when I first started thinking, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to tell over 4,000 years of history in a way that people will want to read it and it will make an impact on them? And so I thought, well, I'm going to tell it the way I teach. So that's really what I did. And in fact, r- if you think about the stories that I tell, a lot of them are from my personal life with my husband, but a lot of them also are my stories in the classroom and how my students, how I help awaken my students um, to this inconsistency in what we claim to be as biblical womanhood. So that's, I think, gave me a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, that, that helped me be able to tell this story because I've been telling this story since 2008 or building this, you know, the story has been coming together for me in my classroom. Yes. Can I just say, Beth, um, I'm so thankful for you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was an American history major in undergrad. And the reason I majored in history in undergrad is because I had a high school prof- uh, teacher who taught me AP history mm-hmm. that did exactly what you did. Yeah. That took stories and made them alive today. And so that when I read history, I felt seen and known, and I felt like I, I'm i bigger than just me because yes. my story is, like bits of my story show up in our recapitulations of all these people in history. Yes. And that makes history so exciting and come alive. Uh, that's what history is. It's the story of people and the story of people's lives. And w- our history is connected to all of these histories that came before us. And so I think that, you know, I recently had a question, somebody asked me why in the book I didn't tell people's names. And I had to think about that for a minute because I did actually make a choice about that. Part of it was, is all these people are alive. (laughs) And so I didn't wanna, you know, the people in my life, I wasn't trying to call them out or draw attention to the particular churches that these um, things. But part of the reason I didn't use names is because I wanted people to see themselves in the story. I wanted women to read these and be like, oh my gosh, I was on that women's retreat um, when this happened. And I heard this speaker telling these, you know, telling women that their primary calling was to be stay-at-home moms and mothers. And it made me feel guilty about holding down, being the primary breadwinner in my house. And so I wanted people to see themselves in these stories. And so I intentionally left them where I told my story, but I left them open so that people could see themselves. And I think it's working. Um, I'm hearing back from a lot of women and women are telling me their experiences and they're saying, this was me, this was me. And that's what I wanted them to hear. Yeah, Beth, I am a pastor in Colorado Springs and I wish I could have read this book 20 years ago. (laughs) I wish um, 
Yeah, I'm just really thankful that you wrote it. I'm really hopeful because I do think that you are going to get women writing in saying, this was me. Thank you Mm -hmm. for writing this because it's something that women need to hear for sure. That's what I'm hoping. And I like Colorado Springs, by the way. We go there a lot with my kids. So. Ooh, well, come visit anytime. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, maybe, uh, maybe it'd be good for us to define some terms here. Yes. Uh, what is biblical womanhood? Yes, very good. Um, so biblical womanhood is the idea that women are divinely created to be under the, um, under the authority of men, under male headship. And that because of this, women are not divinely created to be leaders and they're not divinely created to be teachers and that their primary um, you know, role given to them by God is to be wives and mothers. Uh, so that really is biblical womanhood in a nutshell. And of course, the term biblical womanhood, I didn't use this in my book, but I've used it before. It's a very modern term. And if you actually look at it, you can go like to Google Books and so forth and put the, the term biblical womanhood in, and it shoots up. It starts in the 1970s at the end of the, it, it's, it doesn't exist until the end of the 1970s. And then it like shoots up in the 90s and the early 2000s at the peak of it. And so it's it's a very modern term that's created. And my argument is that it is created on culture. It is not created on the Bible. And that's the, that's really my thesis of the book is that this is a cultural construction. It's not a biblical construction. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's probably what is most arresting for many because, um, you know, you tell some of your story in the book about how you, you and your husband were a part of a complementarian church, mm-hmm. and this biblical womanhood was being sort of uh, broadcast, and yes. every, all the women and men were being proselytized about it. Yes. Um, and what you what you came to realize, and I'd love for you to maybe, if you could isolate or highlight a couple anecdotes for us, mm-hmm. you tell some in the book, I wonder if there's others, when you realized biblical woman, because there's a sense of like, well, it's biblical, it's just right. true, and uh, if, you, if you disagree with it, then your problem's with God, not... Yes, you know, that's exactly right. Yeah, not not biblical womanhood. Yeah. Take it up with God, right? Yes. Uh, but there's at some point you realize, no, this is cultural womanhood, not, and it's a it's a way of reading the scripture through a certain culture. It's not even it's not even what scripture actually presents. Like, how did you come to that right. realization, being in that culture? So it was a long awakening process for me, and part of this is because I really had swallowed this lie and it is a lie, I think it's deception, that biblical womanhood is, um, you know, that is ordained by God. And so, you know, I tell sort of, I first begin to see the disconnect when I was at Chapel Hill and in these women's history programs. And what really struck me was how similar um, the narrative that I was getting in my church about what women were supposed to do and what women were not supposed to do and how they were supposed to be under male authority, how similar that narrative was to the narrative that was taught to women in the ancient world before Christianity, um, before, you know, that it was that this narrative that Christians are telling is not any different than the narrative that the rest of the world has been telling since the very beginning. And so that really, I started struggling with that because I was like, if we are, if Christianity is something different, if it's moving us to something different, then why does it look like the rest of the world? And that was really my place where I started with questioning what this was. Um, and then my, I tell the moment in my book where I had sort of my revelation, and it's a moment when I had first started teaching women's history at Baylor. And I would teach the ancient world. And I actually started teaching with Ben Witherington's books um, about Mm -hmm. women in the ancient world and ancient Christianity. And one of the things that I noticed, and I didn't really talk about this in the books, but um, I noticed that he talked about how in the gospels, especially like in Luke, we get what we call parallel passages where there's a story about a man and then there's a parallel story about a woman. And he mentioned how unique this is, that this is not something that we often, you know, that the Bible, this, you know, pulling out women and telling their stories in the same way that men's stories are told. And that began to resonate with me. And then I started doing this exercise in my classroom where we would read Romans 16. And that just, you know, doing that over and over again, and then hearing 
in the sermons, you know, there was a sermon, a particular sermon that I heard, and I actually think it was the same sermon where at the end we had a couple in our church stand up and the woman gave her testimony about how she was called to divinely submit to her husband. And I remember this, these words so clearly because she said, if your husband says something that you disagree with it, disagree with, you shouldn't tell him. You should just say, sure, sure, hun. And she said, that's the word you just need to practice is sure. And I was like, what the heck is this? You know, this is not, <laughs> this is not what we see in the Bible. And, um, you know, and the Romans 16 just kept coming to my mind. And of course, by this point, I had been reading medieval sermons and medieval priests for a very long time. And I, one of the things that I saw over and over again is how medieval priests use gender inclusive language when they translate the Bible. And they tell many more stories about women in the Bible than modern pastors do. I mean, really, I started learning about women in the Bible and the importance of their stories from reading medieval sermons, not from the sermons that I listened to in my modern evangelical churches. And so this disconnect where I was like, this is, this is not the way the story has always been told. Um, and this is not the way that the gospel presents the story about women. So why is this what my pastor is saying? And I had this sort of breakdown where I suddenly realized I didn't buy male headship anymore. And I tell that story in my book, you know, where my husband came in and was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't believe in male headship. And that was, that was the moment where the, sort of the light bulb came on for me. And then yeah. I had to start unpacking really what that meant. And, uh, and so, and that took me a few more years too. And my husband too, he walked along, alongside with me um, throughout this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's so medieval sermons, medieval priests. That's not a bastion of feminism there. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, this it's is, not. It's a this very isn't. patriarchal world. Yeah. Yes. And, but but there were certain things that had not shaped biblical womanhood yeah. that weren't present in that time. And you go into detail in the book. I wonder this helps us understand how it was made, right. how it was constructed. Yeah. What was different about medieval Europe mm -hmm. uh, patriarchy? versus 21st century biblical womanhood patriarchy. Right, so this is another moment. I've been in a writing group at Baylor for real, over 10 years now. And so um, I work with three other faculty women. And it's a voluntary writing group and we exchange our writing over time. And I have, and they're all brilliant women who are there with me. And one of them, I remember at some point when I was kind of talking through, I wasn't even thinking about this book. I was actually talking through um, sort of some medieval understanding of patriarchy, et cetera, and was mentioning how on the one hand, it's the same, patriarchy is there, but there's these really distinct differences. And one of my um, friends, she looked at me and she said, well, yeah, patriarchy shapeshifts. And that was just like this other, and in fact, I used, uh, and I, you know, I put in the introduction, I said, this is this is my friend, Leslie Honor, who told me this. Um, but that really was too, because I was like, if biblical womanhood is biblical, if it's based upon biblical values, then those values should be the same. That should be what, you know, that why women are not to preach or teach should be consistent if it's based upon a consistent foundation in the Bible, but it's not consistent. And in the medieval world, the reason women couldn't preach and teach wasn't because of Paul. It was because women's bodies were considered to be um, inferior to men. There was women yeah. were actually, you know, this old Aristotelian idea that women are deformed men and that their yeah. bodies are inferior. And so therefore they can't lead because of their physical bodies. And, but what's interesting in the medieval world is that gender for them was a little bit more fluid. And I know that's sort of dangerous waters, but I'm not saying anything about modern times. I'm just saying this is the medieval world. It was. And so there was an idea that women could escape their flawed bodies. And those women who escaped their flawed bodies could preach and teach and lead just like men. And so this yeah. is why we have people like Hildegard of Bingen going on preaching tours and preaching to um, major male ecclesiastics who then write back to her, never quote Paul at her, say, oh my gosh, that was such a good sermon. Would you, t you know, share with me you know, advice for my congregation, advice on my sermons? I mean, it's just amazing. And it's because Hildegard of Bingen escaped her sexed body. Um, she was a virgin. She was um, a holy woman. She was, you know, a monastic. 
And if you women who left their, their roles as wives and mothers behind and became holy women dedicated to God, they became, they were able to exercise the authority of men. Um, there's one 15th century sermon that it just says it so powerfully. It says, women in God be men. And that's really it, it's that women are able to overcome. So women in the medieval world can preach and teach and lead. Um, there are the exceptions, not the rule, but it is okay for certain women who meet certain conditions. When we get in the Reform after the Reformation world, this changes and patriarchy shapeshifts. And now we have women, um, women's primary calling, instead of their highest calling to be dedicated to God, their highest calling is now being wives and mothers. And being and this and being wives and mothers intertwined with them being under the authority of men. And so even though the post-Reformation world considers women to be spiritually equal to men, um, it also puts a caveat in there. It says women are spiritually equal to men, but women are always under male authority. And yeah. this wasn't the case in the medieval world. Women could escape. Yeah. They can't escape anymore um, right. with this beginning, with modern biblical womanhood. Yeah, and it, and it's not like you're advocating a return to the medieval belief. No, I am you know, not that women's bodies are inferior. <laughs> I mean, obviously, maybe maybe not obvious. I just want to make it clear. Yes, I um, am not but, advocating but, that. But yeah, um, <laughs> note yeah to all inter. Anyways, um, but but the point here that I'm hearing you raise is that this shape shifting of patriarchy means that while we could like come to new understanding about women's bodies and say, oh, okay. You're right. We don't. We they're not inherently in, uh, inferior. Instead of that being like, oh, I guess they don't need to escape their sex right. bodies in order to teach and lead. We just found a new reason yes, why they can't. That's exactly what happened. Mm. Patriarchy shapeshift, yeah. and that's what I find so fascinating. And the reason it shapeshift and the rules changed, and they aligned with culture, not with the Bible. New parts yeah. of the Bible began to be used to emphasize why women can't preach, teach, and lead. And that's where we see Paul. You know, this, this Paul comes into play with a vengeance after the Reformation era in a way that he didn't before. Yes. Yeah. So there's like a history of interpretation here that, mm -hmm. that I think you have to take seriously, right? Why, right. why didn't, you know, if they had, if they had the Bible to, ba to make sure that women couldn't teach and lead, why didn't they use it? But yes. You know? Well, you know, and I think part of this is too, is the modern Protestant um, aversion to Catholicism, where some of the ways we've mm -hmm. kind of gotten away from even relying at all on medieval Christianity is we put them in a box. And in fact, you know, many, many, many um, modern Christians believe that medieval Catholics probably weren't Christian. I mean, and this is just, yes, you know, this is something right. you hear preached. This is something you hear taught yeah. all the time. And I think that's part of how we have dismissed this medieval history is because we dismiss um, them as true believers. So yeah. I think that's part of also our modern bias. Yeah, and there's a, there's a sense in which in the Reformation, it's part of the mythology is that we were getting back to the Bible. Yes, that's you a know, mythology. Sola scriptura, <laughs> like we're, you know, yep. right. But it's, I mean, that it's a mythology, right? It I is. Mean, that's, that's important in the sense that it's it's not necessarily what was happening. No, you know, the Bible, you know, I, in so. fact, I just wrote an article on this for an Oxford collection on um, how prevalent the medieval English Bible was before the Reformation. And so, mm. you know, medieval people mm. knew their Bible. Um, they just yeah. knew different parts of it than we do today because culture yeah. changes because we read the Bible according to our culture. And yeah, that yes. emphasizes different pieces of it. Um, you know, the most popular verse in the Bible in, or verses, they didn't really, they didn't have versification um, as prominently, but is the, is Matthew, is the, is the sheeps and the goats. I mean, that is where you, you know, um, you did not feed me, you did not clothe me, mm -hmm. you did not yeah. visit the sick, the poor, the hungry. That is the most prominent verse preached in late medieval English sermons. Um, it's, a very, it's a very vivid parable. Yeah. So, I'm thinking of the, uh, are you guys old enough to know the Keith Green song? Remember, remember I, there's a Keith Green song? I do remember oh, yeah. the Keith Green song. Where he, he did the sheep and the goats? Yep. I love that song. I'm yep. sure it was subtle and nuanced knowing Keith Green. I'm oh, sure. no, it was, it was in your face, <laughs> on fire, prophetic. Um, yeah, anyway. Astute listeners will piece together what Beth is saying here, which is the 
the modern complementarian biblical womanhood argument is novel. Yes. It's an invention. It's it's not you can't trace it historically. Mm-mm. Meaning very few, very few people today would root uh, this hierarchy or this complementarity, this subordination of women, in some kind of deficiency of the female body, intellect, character. And it's you can't exaggerate uh, enough that for the first, what, 1900 years, 1950 years, that this, like, like this uh, basically ontological inferiority of the entire uh, female human yeah. being was the reason why they couldn't lead. Yeah. And that's much different than what we hear today. It is. And, you know, this whole, uh, so I kind of was shaking my head there a little bit because there's some shifts within that. And in yeah, the medieval world, you know, it, it really is. It's this Aristotelian model that there is something wrong with the female body, but women can't escape it. Um, the Reformation theology, and I write this in the book, I say, you know, Reformation theology should have set women free, but it didn't because it claimed that women were spiritually equals. But at the same time, like shortly thereafter, we have the scientific revolution and the enlightenment period. And what they, they don't preach that women's bodies are inferior to men. They just begin to pre, and I use the word preach, even though they're science. I mean, that's really what they're doing. Um, they're preaching that women's bodies are different from men. And they are so different that they are designed for specific jobs that are different than men. Um, And they go into the science of this. Women's brains are smaller than men. Women's bodies are smaller than men. Um, And you can see this because this is not across the board true. Uh, You know, men and women come in all sorts of different sizes and shapes and everything. So this is not across the board true. But they argued that it was. And because women's bodies bear children, that should be their primary job, which is Really interesting if you actually think about it. Um, but that began to be the argument and that women, because women's brains were smaller and because their bodies were designed to bear children, that, women's, that women couldn't think and, could, and intellectually were inferior um, to men. So even though they're saying women are spiritually equals, they're still part of this argument that women can't, um, they can't learn in the same way. And this is why, you know, women aren't allowed into universities. Um, you know, we have a few women who actually make it through. My daughter is, uh, I chose her name for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because she's named after the first woman who got her uh, PhD, um, actually from the University of Cordova in the 17th century. But she actually got a theology degree but she couldn't get the theology degree, so they had to shift it. And so she got a doctorate of philosophy because they wouldn't let a woman have a theological degree. And so anyway, but it's women were not allowed to have the same sort of education. And this is also the beginning of sort of home ec classes. Um, those were designed because that's what women should do. And so that's where women are best. So let's teach them how to do their skills and let's teach men how to do their skills. You know, finishing schools, all of that sort of stuff evolved from this idea that women are designed, science, you know, their bodies are designed to be different from men. And then this got fed into theology. Um, so, mm. Yeah, so the, the the phrase that comes to mind as you describe that is different but equal. Yes, I know. Which should evoke, <laughs> it should. again, astute listeners, some of the same logic was used uh, to separate white and black people. It's exactly the same. Um, and yeah. that's one of the scary things. It was really hard for me not to focus more on race in this book. In fact, my, my editors kept, they were being like, they were like, let's focus on the point. The point is women here. We can pull it. So I only got to do it a few times, but it is scary how Mm. similar the rhetoric that was used to keep black people enslaved and the rhetoric that was even used against, um, you know, brown and black people throughout American history is very similar to the rhetoric used against women. Um, And the same Bible verses, the household codes, that are used to enforce women's submission to men were the same ones that were used to argue that slavery is allowed and actually that there's a place for it um, in the world of Jesus. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. 
In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. Hey everyone, this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast is brought to you in part by Respero. Respero seeks to bring healing to hurting people through life-changing conversations. Respero offers the opportunity to be trained as a lay counselor, enabling you to provide help to people in your communities. If you're interested in becoming a counselor or wondering if it might be a good fit, check out Respero's Understanding People course the first step to joining Respero's counseling team. Founder Joe Bishop leads every cohort of counselors in training and continues to to provide oversight. Once the courses are completed, Respero also offers an array of personal development courses and lessons covering topics ranging from anger and anxiety to codependency and spiritual abuse, something we've talked about quite often on this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how you relate to yourself and others, consider taking the Understanding Yourself course. You can find Respero on social media at Respero Restoring Hope or online at Respero.org. That's R-E-S-P-E-R-O dot org. We'll hope you'll join them in their mission of bringing hope to a hurting and chaotic world. We don't let anyone sponsor our podcast, Ben. No, nope. yeah, you can't just come in here and give us money. No, that's not how this works. No way, no way. We've turned away thousands, but not Respero. <laughs> they, their yeah. vision and mission align very close with what we're doing. We encourage you to yeah. check it out. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, especially now. I'm I'm glad that they had contacted us. Now, I mean, we we were just talking in the intro. Um, we were just talking recently about how it. Mm-hmm. Just how crazy and chaotic uh, this this past year has been with the yep. pandemic and with everything else going on. So mental health is uh, high on everybody's radar. I think uh, Respero can offer some help uh, in that regard. Mm. And also the training. The training as a lay counselor is intriguing to me as well yeah. um, in terms of just being able to, you know, not just understand yourself a bit better, but be able to have better conversations with others and help others. Yep. You want to become more like Jesus, understand yourself, and understand people better. Check, Check it out. out. R-E-S-P-E-R-O dot org. Respero. Thanks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, guys. Beth, you were in, uh, for a very long time, in a complementarian church and environment. Yeah. And then there was a shift, and you guys left that. Can you tell us a little bit? Because my guess is that there are going to be some listeners here who are in that environment right now as they're listening, um, and probably would love to hear your story, and probably are wondering, um, how does this affect me and where I am right now? Right. No, and it was, um, you know, my husband and I began to be troubled about this for quite a while. As I said, there was many years. And in fact, some in some ways we were a little bit protected because we'd been at the church for so long. And my husband was a really fantastic youth minister. And I don't just, just say that because I'm his wife, but um, we did all sorts of youth ministry conferences and everything and the impact on the kids. So we had a pretty large youth group. And because it was uh, you know very successful, we really had a lot of freedom within it. And so essentially we had this bubble within our church. And we just didn't talk about male-female roles. Whenever we did, we mostly emphasized sort of the husband's um, job to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And what does that actually mean? And so we really didn't. And we tried to provide opportunities for both women and men to teach. Like we would, the girls would teach just as the boys would teach. And so we really tried to do that um, quite a bit. But it began to become untenable for us uh, because first of all, the leadership in the church was becoming increasingly hostile towards women in these roles at the same time that we were clearly pushing the boundaries of it. And it kind of came to a head um, when we had to get a new Sunday school teacher. And, um, you know, and people, 
women and men in evangelical churches do not volunteer to do things. I mean, it, you know, this is the problem. We, there's no motivation to actually serve other people, which is a big problem to in evangelical churches. Um, you know, it's about what can the church do for me instead of what can I do for the church. And so, yes. you know, this is across the board. It's hard to find volunteers. And we were just hitting a wall with fine. And part of it was too, is my husband and I were very particular about who we wanted to teach these kids. And so there were a lot of people that we were like, we're not even going to consider them. So that was part of it too is we were making it more difficult. And then there was a smaller pool. And so finally, the and I actually got permission to teach, but I couldn't teach. I had to lead the students in a discussion of the sermon from the week before, facilitate. I can say this now, I actually didn't do that. I usually just turned it into my own lesson and did whatever. But, so, but that's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to facilitate. And so we... Um, we decided, you know, to me, it just seems so innocuous. We just simply asked if we could come talk to the elders and get a woman to team teach the Sunday school class with a man. Because we had a man who would be willing to do it, but he didn't want to do it every week. And he said, okay, you know, so I'd be willing to team teach and we can do this. We thought this was so easy, innocuous. And we weren't even allowed to go and talk before the elders. Um, we got a phone call. I tell the story about this. And we got like this hard no they would not even consider it because it was the slippery slope that led to, you know, and it was just this, for both of us, it just crashed on us because, you know, we were like, we, I mean, both of us realized at that moment we couldn't stay here. And, mm -hmm. um, but the question was, what were we going to do? Were we going to walk away quietly or were we going to try to push it and make change? And ultimately we decided to try to push it and make change. And that ended up with us being fired three weeks later. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and it, I laugh. Quick. Yeah, I, well, it was. It was, <laughs> and it was, it was crazy too. I don't know if you've read Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's book, A Church Called Tove. Um, but yeah. it, what happened to us follows exactly what happened, um, what they talk about in a toxic church culture. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, yeah. um, we were told if we talked about it, that um, we would lose our severance pay. And the church doled out the severance paid monthly instead of giving it to us as a package to, um, essentially it was, I think, to keep us from talking. Hush money. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it was. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't, it, Christy, did I answer? Um, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. women in, I mean, this is a hard decision. Mm -hmm. You know, women, I know why women should stay. Women stay mm -hmm. because these are our friends. I mean, I still grieve over the friends I lost. We have yes. not yet rebuilt those friendships. Um, yeah. You know, and there are big holes in our life from what we lost. And I understand that. You know, it still hurts. Um, yeah. I understand, you know, our children. Um, you know, those were their friends. The trauma it caused to both of our children was pretty significant. And they're only now starting to understand what happened. And I mean, you know, and then we lost my husband's livelihood um, and it was in a pretty traumatic way. And it, you know, the, the trauma it caused our family was significant. Mm -hmm. And the trauma that when women choose to leave churches over these reasons, it often causes similar trauma to them. And, the, and so I understand the hard choices that women have to make um, because I had to make them too. Yeah, I one of my thoughts is, you know, when when we're in a situation like that and there's a choice that's made, often when either way if if people choose to leave or if people choose to stay, it can create bitterness mm -hmm. and in their hearts can get hard. And yes. so I am interested to hear like it sounds like, you know, you and your family and your kids, you've done some really good work to for, for wholeness and for healing in that wounded place, right? Um, but for our listeners that are listening who are in that bitter place, yeah. what would you say to them? Um, I would say that it takes time. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that I think the thing that saved us, and I, I mean, we are really just now starting to come out of the trauma that happened to us. I mean, my husband and I were like paralyzed for like really, mm. you know, six to eight months. It was just... You know, I tell, I mean, I told a little bit of it in the book, but I mean, there were, it's the only time in my life I've had trouble sleeping. Um, only time in, and I'm an academic. I have a stressful life. Um, so it was the only time in my life I had trouble sleeping. We both developed weird health issues 
that we had never, ever had before and that um, have mostly gone away since then. And it was clearly because of the trauma that was, um, you know, was caused on us. So it's, I think what saved us is that we knew this wasn't, we knew this wasn't God. We knew this wasn't Jesus. We knew this was people, people sin. And you can't rely on people to, um, to, you can't rely on people to do what's right because we don't, we screw up all the time. And I think we knew that. And so we never blamed God. We never blamed God. Um, we knew it grieved us how our friends treated us. It grieved us what we lost. Um, you know, I, the, the only thing I really get angry about is the way, is what it did, what they, what they did to my husband. That still causes me to get angry because, um, you know, he's, he's such a fantastic pastor and he has, you know, his integrity is so really high, I mean, more so than any of the people we were dealing with. And so it grieves me the way they painted him and the way, you know, they cast doubt on his character. In fact, the letter that they sent out about us could have been read that my husband had done something like some sort, you know, it could have been, and I couldn't speak for like a whole day after we got that letter. And clearly I talk a lot. So, um, you know, it just says what sort of trauma that, that we were in. It's, it's just, you know, that's the part that still sometimes causes me to get angry and what I just have to do is I just have to remember, I'm just like, this is not, this is not of God. And um, I'm a problem solver. And so I, when I finally started kind of coming out, when I was like, something has to be done, I was like, okay, how can I help? And I think that's what both of us sort of came to. We were like, how can we help? Um, and so we started and what we could, so we started doing what we could do to help in this situation. Um, and that's when I started my blog series on the anxious bench. That really is the beginning of the making of biblical womanhood. It's the origin story. Um, and that was how I caught the attention of Brazos Press was from, I was starting to tell pieces of this on the anxious bench. And they were like, is this a book? <laughs> and so that's kind of how it came together. But that was very cathartic to me, writing it out and, and recognizing um, I spent a lot of time in uh, reading the words of women in the past who had one of my favorite favorite devotionals was um, Streams in the Desert, which was my grandmother's. I have my grandmother's copy. Mm -hmm. And it, it really helped me through that, um, you know. And so I, I think we just did a lot, of those, a lot of those things. And we talked with a lot of people. We had some good friends who were close to us um, who helped us. And we just processed a lot with them and spent time. And th those, those things helped. But I think the key thing was realizing that this isn't God, um, that this is people. And of course, people fell because we are flawed humans. Yeah. Yeah, you allude to this, but um, you go into lots of reasons why biblical womanhood is not good. You go into mm -hmm. theological reasons, historical yeah. reasons. Um, and you just alluded to another one. Uh, these cultures create abusive, toxic environments yes, they do. for women. And this isn't, um, I, there's research behind this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That there. abuse is more prevalent <laughs> yes. in these more, um, more self-identifying, self-defined patriarchal cultures, yes? Yes, yes. There's research and there's historical evidence. Yeah. Um, we could talk to you about this book all day, Beth. I, I think you're the second chapter on on the writings of Paul and how those are used to silence women and support biblical womanhood is the most succinct, clearest case I've seen in any book I've read. Um, mm -hmm. Making use of the latest uh, scholarship, Lucy Pepiat and other people. Mm -hmm. It's so good. For the Thank you. For chapter two, buy this book. Uh, it's so <laughs> good. But, but I want to I wanna maybe close us with, you name a number of different cultural artifacts that um, we we tell ourselves biblical womanhood is this is this pristine theological truth, right? But really, it's a syncretism. <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly right. It is. Yeah, and and one of the one of the forces, and there's more, and I won't tell you all of them. One of the forces is what you call the cult of domesticity. Oh yeah. <laughs> and here's a quote. Uh, I thought this summed up the book really well. It's on page 166. Instead of biblical womanhood stemming from the Bible. It stems from a gender hierarchy developed in the wake of the Industrial Revolution to deal with the social and economic changes wrought by work 
moving outside the home. Yes. Mm. Can you can you describe what is the cult of domesticity? Mm-hmm. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Yeah. And 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 how it's a response to cultural change. Right. So the cult of domesticity, it's also called the cult of true womanhood in American history. So you kind of hear it. I'm a Europeanist, so cult of domesticity is what we call it there. Um, But essentially, with the Industrial Revolution, um, work began to move outside the home and away from the family, away, you know, away from the the towns and villages where people lived, away from their land that they worked on. Um, And it began to move into into factories, into um, just into guilds. And there's all sorts of stories that happened during this time where we see women getting pushed out of jobs because a lot of jobs that women, a, a good one for me, and I tell this story in there because I'm a medievalist, is beer. Um, in, the, in the medieval world, it was women and monks who controlled the brewing. And they, you know, they brewed beer and they sold beer. And this is sort of your, your market. By the time we get to the 16th century, it is men, guilds, non-monastics who actually control the brewing process and start selling beer and women get pushed out of the market. And so this shows us, you know, these economic changes that are happening, this gets exacerbated with the industrial revolution, um, really, you know, the the 18th, 19th century where we begin to see this. And what happens, I mean, you could just think about this, this is exactly what's happened in in our modern world. When work is outside the home, and families are still having children, the question is, what do you do with those kids? You know, how do you take Mm. care of them? What do you do with those things? And so we begin to see this ideology develop that says, okay, so women already are weaker than men. They're already, you know, science tells us that there's all of these problems, that they can't be leaders. So while there's some jobs that women can do, they really shouldn't be doing it. So let's pay them less. Um, I mean, that was the philosophy behind it. You know, let's pay them less to discourage them from working because they really should be in the home. And, and you know, I quote, I quote um, someone who actually says this, that this is why we pay women less, is so to discourage them from working so that they would be in the home. Mm. Um, mm. And then this also, you know, this, it also, women's jobs, the things that they are able to do then begins to become limited. As we see with the Industrial Revolution, more education begins to be required for the types of jobs that are outside the home and with keeping up with industry, et cetera. We also see the growth of the universities here and women are not allowed into those. So like me- the medical profession is another thing. Women practiced medicine for a very long time. I teach a medieval text called the Trotula, um, which is uh, you know written by a school of female physicians. Um, in the medieval era. And then by the early modern era, it's it's men who are the doctors and the practitioners and they have to go to university and women can't be doctors and practitioners because they don't have university degrees, but that's because the university won't let them have degrees. And so, I mean, it's this, it's this whole thing, but this, it's to, it's to solve this social problem of what do we do with families and kids when work is no longer there with the yeah. children. And, um, and what do we, so, and really what you can see with this too, is it's a class oriented, um, Mm -hmm. system. The only people who could really afford and and the cult of domesticity is essentially women have these characteristics that good women have these characteristics, um, which they're focused on the home. They're focused on their purity, um, Mm -hmm. which means that they're, you know, they're only having the children of their husbands. Um, you know, they're focused on their, their domestic skills. They're focused on their religious piety, which they teach quietly to their children under the authority of their husbands. And so all of these things, they become embodied in what a woman is supposed to be in the 19th century. But the only women who could be this were rich women. And so we have this class element in here too. And so we see also women in the middle classes and the middling classes aspiring to this goals of, and you can see this in our world today because it's Mm -hmm. a mark of status if you have the luxury of staying home with your kids. Um, and so it's like, oh, poor working woman who has to go and doesn't get to, you know, doesn't get to make sandwiches in the shape of butterflies for their children. Um, you know, that, I mean, it's... And post it on Instagram. Yeah, and post it. Although <laughs> I'm saying this because I actually did post my, um, fiber, my, my chocolate chip muffins that I make right. for my daughter Nothing in Star Wars shapes. posting <laughs> pictures of food on Instagram. It's so, okay, everybody. Anyway, okay. but there we are. I like to make food shaped like Star Wars. Uh, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> that's true. Um, that's great. So anyway, so I but it becomes a mark, and it's it's for yeah. upper class women, and mm-hmm. um, it's not. And so this also begins to have this distinction between, um, mm. you know, it it pushes lower class women, it pushes, it marginalizes, really yes. most women, right. um, mm-hmm. by and then giving them a, this unrealistic ideal that you have to meet. So. Yeah. And my argument is that modern biblical womanhood is essentially the cult of domesticity, um, just almost cut and paste. Uh, yeah, with some Bible verses. Yeah, on. that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So every time I hear you say biblical, I'm like, I imagine, like, we, we almost have to put like scare quotes around it, right? Yes. It's like I, I, biblical. Uh, yeah, biblical. But, you know, it's, you know, yeah, it's supposedly biblical. Yes. So. Yeah, I love that image of uh, uh, mothers quietly teaching their children, lest a man hear them teach. You know, like shh, you know, mm-hmm. quick, don't let it, don't let anyone overhear. Right. Um, I I wonder I wonder if we do you guys do we have time for this? I I'd like to end with um, this a blog post from a long time ago uh, came up as I was listening. It's uh, from Eugene Cho's blog in 2008. It's called 10 Reasons Why Men Should Not Be Ordained for Ministry." <laughs> I haven't seen that. Can we end? Can we end with a little humor? Yeah, like, I found this so funny when I first read it because it basically take it's basically the opposite of what you just detailed around like what we've done to sort of slap some biblical reasons, mm-hmm. supposed like scare quotes, biblical mm-hmm. some biblical reasons on why women shouldn't be ordained or shouldn't teach or shouldn't lead, you know that kind of thing. Um, and this this was really funny. Can I can I read this? Yeah, Go for pretty it. quick. All right. So 10 reasons. This is Eugene Cho, by the way. Are you going to count it down like David Letterman style, like number 10? Yeah, it's David Letterman style. Yeah, yeah. So 10 reasons why men should not be ordained for ministry. Number 10, a man's place is in the army, period. (laughs) (laughs) Number nine, the pastoral duties of men who have children might distract them from the responsibility of being a parent, (laughs) when you think about it. Number eight, the physique of men indicates that they are more suited to such tasks as chopping down trees and wrestling mountain lions. It would be unnatural for them to do ministerial tasks. Number seven, man was created before woman, obviously as a prototype. Yes. Thus, they represent an experiment rather than the crowning achievement of creation. Number six, men are too emotional to be priests or pastors. Their conduct at football and basketball games demonstrates this. Number five, some men are handsome, and this will distract women worshipers. <laughs> Number four, oh, pastors need to nurture their congregations, but this is not a right? traditional male role. Throughout history, women have yes. been recognized not only as more skilled than men at nurturing, but also more fervently attracted to it. This makes them the obvious choice for ordination. Number three, Men are prone to violence. No really masculine man wants to settle disputes except by fighting about them. Thus, they would be very poor role models as well as dangerously unstable in positions of leadership. <laughs> wow, that one is like spot on there with yeah. dangerously right, yeah, it's unstable. Like, maybe we should take these seriously. All right, two more. Two, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was betrayed by a man. His lack mm-hmm. of faith and ensuing punishment remind us of the subordinated position that all men should take. Yep. <laughs> Number one, men can still be involved in church activities, even without being ordained. They can sweep sidewalks, they can repair the church roof, and perhaps even lead a song on Father's Day, the song service on Father's Day. But by confining themselves to such traditional male roles, they can still be a vitally important in, in the life of the church. I don't know so. how I've missed that um, in my life, so I'm going to have to go it, yeah, find it's, that. It's That's 2008. Fantastic. I mean, this has been around for a long time. I see it every once in a while. It's incredible. Oh, we'll put a link in the show notes. That's great. Biblical manhood, everybody, right there. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Uh, well, we didn't even talk about uh, heresy and <laughs> uh, theological issues of biblical yep. womanhood. Oh, yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about all that. I um, just want to, again, thank you, Beth, for being with us today. Thank you for this book, which um, I love books that make history compelling, interesting, and desirable. And this book does that. Thank um, you. So thank you for your hard work. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, and may God use this book to bless many, many people. Thank you. That's my prayer, too. Um, yeah. So let's say you're, uh, if you're in Waco, uh, take some classes with Beth. But how else can people connect with you, Beth? Are you on social media? Where, uh, plug I your am. I, I like Twitter. I sort of say, you know, my husband hangs out on Facebook and I hang out on Twitter. 
So we kind of cover that. Um, I'm a little bit on Instagram too, but uh, but Twitter is the place that I that I mostly am. So you go find me. I'm BethAllisonBar.com. Hmm. I mean, sorry, that's my website. But I'm BethAllisonBar on I, everything's BethAllisonBar. So you great, know, great. you can all find me there. Okay, and on, is, if you want pictures of food shaped like Star Wars, you could go to. You could go. Can, yeah. Okay. You can also see my 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 life living on Baylor campus because I live with undergrads. So. Okay. Anyway. All right. Thanks so well, much, Beth. Okay. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Thanks for Beth. having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.